Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. This is your host, Elena McGrath. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to the editors of the book, Itineraries of Expertise, Science, Technology, and the Environment in Latin America's Long Cold War, out last month from University of Pittsburgh Press. We are recording while sheltering in place on April 9th, 2020. So first, I want to welcome um, Andre Chastain is an assistant professor of Latin American world history at Washington State University, Vancouver. Her book, Chile Underground, The Santiago Metro and the Struggle for a Rational City, is under contract with Yale University Press. Timothy Lorick is an outreach coordinator for the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at the University of Michigan, and he is working on his book, um, Conflicted Landscape, Agriculture, Colombia, and the Making of a Green Revolution. So welcome to both of you. Um, I want to start by just asking, how did you come to this project? Why did you feel this edited volume was important, and, and how did you put it together? Sure. So I can say a little bit about that. We came to this project during graduate school. Uh, We were both preparing our dissertation prospectuses and taking comprehensive exams at the same time. And Tim was reading for a list in environmental history, and I was reading a list in the history of technology. And we found that we had a lot of shared interests, uh, shared questions, uh, questions about the increasing human control over nature in the 20th century and the consequences this has wrought for natural and built environments. And we were interested broadly in interactions between knowledge and politics um, and the relationship between human and non-human actors um, or environments. So, and we were also both working, thinking ahead to our dissertations, and we're really interested in studying the role of experts on the ground. So in the case of Tim, agronomists, in my case, engineers and urban planners. Um, So we wanted to bring together a range of people working on similar questions, expertise in the Latin American Cold War. Um, And we did this by holding a conference uh, at Yale in October of 2016. Um, So 
we asked a number of questions there, which then kind of animate the book about questions about modernization and development and the role of experts in those um, struggles during the long Cold War. And we explicitly wanted to bring into conversation a few um, different fields, overlapping fields, specifically um, the rich field of Latin American Cold War studies, um, as well as environmental history and science and technology studies. So we invited three keynote speakers for those fields, which then who then wrote uh, chapters in our book. So Gil Joseph, um, Eden Medina, and Mark Carey. So that was we wanted to bring these fields together and raise these questions about um, the role of experts in negotiating um, both local and international struggles over modernization writ large in the long Cold War. Um, I was just going to add a little bit uh, to what Andra said about those those three keynotes uh, that that um, survived into the into the book form as the framing essays by by Gil Eden and Mark. Um, I think you know for a lot of readers and and especially graduate students, um, these essays, uh, these framing essays. Um, should be really helpful, and they're 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 one part of the book that we're that we're most excited about. Uh, Gil Joseph's piece, "Border Crossings and the Remaking of Latin Amer- of Latin American Cold War Studies," uh, really takes stock of the growing field of Latin American Cold War history, which, of course, he's been central uh, to for some decades now, um, and really shows the genealogy of where this project came from. Um, and similarly, we were really grateful that Mark Carey and Eden Medina suggested co-writing their uh, contribution, which which is the final chapter of the volume. Uh, you know that we wanted each of them to be able to speak to sort of the state of, in Mark's case, environmental history, and Eden's case, science and technology studies. And they very graciously suggested that they they co-authored this this final this final chapter, which I think really. Um, Helps end the volume on a on a coherent note and makes makes a statement about what was all along one of our original intents, which was to bring these fields together. I think that's a really great point, and I I agree that those essays do a, a remarkably good job of framing the questions in a way that that also allows um, sort of you to your introductory chapter fits really well with Gills and. Um, Mark and Eden's contributions as well. So it does feel like you're inter- entering into a con- um, a conference almost, I think. And mm-hmm. and having read those chapters, I, I, I hope that graduate students pick them up because it's a great contribution. Um, so I want to ask you next about the way you're using expertise and why experts become so central um, to understanding what's going on in Latin America during the long Cold War. Um, so I can speak to that a little bit. Um, and I think Tim can jump in. So, um, we define experts, um, pretty broadly and pretty expansively. Um, we are interested in both, you know, in local as well as national and international forms of expertise. So we think of experts as anyone with specialized knowledge whose identity is strongly linked to their profession, uh, whether or not they have you know, a PhD or some other specific credentials. Um, and so I think 
um, it's important to study experts in the history of the Latin American Cold War because um, these questions about modernization and development, these you know grand dreams, which then became material in things like dams or transportation or housing projects, um, you know new seeds, new crops, um, that these dreams were essential to Cold War struggles, and that experts were of course important in materializing those projects. Um, experts often portrayed themselves as apolitical. Um, and yet they were also very, in many cases, very closely linked to the state. Um, you know, both right and left wing states um, mobilize expert experts and expertise um, for various ends. Um, I don't know if Tim, you want to jump in. Yeah, I, w- I mean, I would add. So one thing that's sort of interesting that um, helps maybe peel uh back the curtain a little bit is that we initially in the conference, we initially used the the word technocrats instead of experts. Um, and for example, the title of the, the original conference in 2016, I think was traveling technocrats. Um, but, you know, one recurring thread of discussion at the conference itself was how this word technocrats can conjure particular political or historical moments or even particular individuals in certain places, like in in Chile, for example. Um, So we had a a long and sort of lasting conversation about about that word at the conference itself. And as Andra and I were going about sort of reorganizing things for for the book proposal, you know, we thought technocrats might be a little too distracting to be applied broadly the way that we use experts and expertise here. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I do think um, it's not not solely in Latin America, but you have a series of different generations of sort of conflicts between people who position themselves as as experts as a way of getting away from politics, from like the Cientificos in Mexico to various, um, you know, economists and others in the Cold War. Um, and and I think it's it's important this volume does really bring out the fact that there's always a politics behind it. And it's not at all um, questions of power are absolutely imprecated, imprecated in this. And um, I might add one other thing to that, um, which is just that, we, you know, we can talk more about this later. But I think it's an important point that, you know, as Andra has kind of already suggested, the Cold War really raises the stakes of a lot of this expert knowledge um, in the political sphere in Latin America. But, you know, of course, the politicization of expertise was nothing new then and, and of course, continues today. But, but the Cold War in certain ways raised the stakes. And one of the things that we were interested in tracing with respect to the, the Cold War in Latin America specifically was the way that certain concepts or processes that are now sort of taken for granted as sort of global phenomena, things like neoliberal economics or, you know, the green revolution and agricultural modernization and hybridization or uh, the concept of biodiversity, that a lot of these these things, um, you know, had important origins in Latin America during the Cold War. And we wanted to tease that out uh, by following you know, these strands of experts and expertise. And so one one of the things that you really focus on in a number of ways is um, this 
this idea that um, that the trajectories of knowledge and expertise are not traveling from the north to the south necessarily. That's not something that is um, the story here. And so, can you talk a little bit more about how that comes out in in this book and why that's so important? Um, yeah, Andre, should I start with that? Um, you maybe you can start, and then I can jump okay. in. I'm so, thinking about specific cases. Yeah. 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 So that'd be great to add cases. So, um, yeah, you know, I think, uh, this, so complicating center periphery relationships or North South binaries, um, is nothing new, you know, and we wouldn't think to take credit for that. Obviously that's, that's, um, been going on for, for, for a long time, but I do think that this volume, offers an assemblage of stories about how local and regional actors moved into and out of and in between domestic and international spheres. Um, So, you know, sort of as we state in the introduction, many of the themes in the book are well known among historians of the Cold War, you know, themes like development and hydroelectric dams and agricultural modernization, field science and so on and so forth. But, you know, almost all of the main characters in each of these familiar stories will be new to most to most readers because of the way we've sort of shifted the focus to the local and regional um, space. And so I think that, um, you know, we're 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 not inventing anything here by any means, but we're trying to build on on some of the literature that's that's been doing that for for some time in terms of. Yeah, I think what Tim said was really good, that they're, we're interested in tracing, you know, not just thinking about reversing the direction, directionality of the expertise, you know, from Latin America to the global north, say, but also um, thinking about regional hubs and, and sort of regional trajectories of experts. So um, I think Tim was also going to talk a little bit about this, but we really wanted our um, chapters to be in conversation with one another. And so we explicitly focus on certain um, centers or, or kind of hubs of expertise, laboratories in the Caribbean, in Mexico, um, in Colombia, and in Chile. And so there's, there's a, a number of cases in the book um, that look at how experts traveled within Latin America. So just to take an example, um, uh, Mark Healy's chapter about housing in um, Colombia examines, you know, Latin American housing experts traveling to Colombia to study um, new techniques in um, self-help housing. Um, and another example in terms of trajectories, uh, Tori Olson's chapter looks at Mexican um, hydroelectric planners and engineers um, in the U.S. South and U.S. and American um, hydroelectric engineers in Mexico, kind of learning from one another. Um, let's see. So, so there, yeah, there are there are also you know relationships with Europe, um, Great Britain. Um, in one case, uh, France in my chapter. And so we, we tried to expand this, uh, but there is also, this is also a, a very much a growing field and, um, there's important new work and, and need for new work, um, in examining tra- trajectories, um, you know, between Latin America and other places in the global South as well. I just want to quick follow up to that and say that one of the one one of our goals with this volume was that it could serve as sort of a foundation for further research in among among other areas in that 
in that direction, right? That it could serve as a, a foundation for people who are thinking more about connections between Latin America and and other parts of the world, um, you know, between Latin America and South Asia or between Latin America and Africa or places um, that have up until recently largely escaped the focus, you know, because of because of the way sort of center periphery models, even in the critique of them, that continues to sort of be, uh, you know, an organizing principle in how people think about historical studies. So, so we hoped to offer this as a way to, you know, not make a definitive statement, but hopefully, hopefully lead to further work in those directions. Yeah. And I think, I think your point is absolutely right on that this, you are not the first set of scholars to, for it to occur to you, of course, that um, the center does not have a monopoly on um, these kinds of things. But I do think that the that vision of the way knowledge circulates still exerts a pretty strong hold on the way we talk about um, the Cold War, the way we talk about development and modernity particularly. So I, I really enjoyed um, the part in your introduction, for example, where you you just make very clear, you say that the United States does not have a monopoly on development or sort of dreams of modernity. Um, but so I guess one thing I really liked about how you organized and put together the chapters is um, this way of thinking about itineraries, right? Which shows how knowledge travels, but does not necessarily assume a certain hub. So um, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and maybe where that idea came from? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start with that. And then um, hopefully Andra can, can add to and pick up if I, if I leave anything out. Um, because you know that's that's something we've obviously thought quite a bit about. Um, so itineraries, you know that um, phrase, that word in particular, um, we we sort of used organically. I mean, we were aware of Neil Safir's essay on on sort of indigenous itineraries of knowledge, um, and 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 it was partially inspired by that. Um, although that's for a much different time period and 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 set of knowledges that you know, our volume doesn't, doesn't really, um, intend to, to, to talk about, um, in a meaningful way, but, but certainly, you know, as a, as a, as an influence, um, it also kind of comes from the influence of the literature and, uh, public health in Latin America, the history of public health. And, um, which, you know, is a really vibrant field, um, and among sort of the broad umbrella of histories of science, the histories of public health in Latin America are, are, um, I think particularly, um, insightful and, and itineraries helped us sort of tease out what I think has been that public health literature's one of its really important contributions, which is this sort of, um, this sort of network without a center, right. And the, the way, um, actors at various, uh, stages and scales and in different places, um, sort of interact in these, in these, um, centerless, centerless networks. Um, you know, itineraries for us offers conceptually, I think a pathway for tracing, you know, technologies of power, which is an important concept in both environmental history and science and technology studies. So getting back to that original intention to bridge those fields, um, Itineraries provides a, a framework for examining both the generation and application of knowledge in particular spaces and across time. So what Andra was saying before, this idea of 
particular locations or convergence zones, right? Places that were important generators of global knowledge um, and not just places where actors from the global north, for example, came and applied their particular uh, set of knowledges or, or technologies. Uh, the individual itineraries of the various experts chronicled in the volume inform our use of the phrase. These individuals might have had multiple nationalities, so to speak, and that's something we talked about a lot, even going back to the conference. Uh, I think we use a phrase that came out in the conference, the hybrid nationalities of experts, and that was something that uh, was, again, one of these threads from that, that really um, you, you know, useful framing event, that conference. Um, and these experts with their hybrid nationalities, you know, they were citizens of their home country, but they often carried a special affinity for the country or countries in which they traveled and worked. But more importantly, they belonged to the imagined community of their discipline. Um, and Stephen Palmer, who, who's one of the authors in our book, once described that as the Republic of Rational Health, right? So again, the influence from from the literature on public health or an imagined international community of health workers. And we recast this idea for, for all types of experts, you know, for agronomists, for engineers, for astrophysicists, for architects and so on. Um, and so itineraries implies not just crossing national political boundaries, but also existing at once in multiple imagined communities, including that of the particular form of expertise at hand. Um, and then, one last thing, I think thinking about itineraries helps us cross geographic borders and travel in multiple di directions, but it also helps us cross time periods. And so this kind of gets at the idea of the long Cold War from Latin American Cold War studies um, that we are in dialogue with. And thinking about the itineraries of knowledge, our volume contends that we really cannot focus exclusively on the Cold War proper. Um, you know, this period, roughly 1945 to 1990, right? That the characters in our volume show that the ideas and processes of the, of the Cold War built upon national and regional foundations that predated 1945. So, um, you know, we write in the intro that itineraries helps us trace how the Cold War spun its technologies of power in Latin America, but how it simultaneously helps us see how Latin America's own internal struggles entered into global circulation. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. That's great. Thank you so much. Andra, do you want to add to that? Um, yeah, let's see. I, um, I also, I think that the question about itineraries 
it Tim's answer is really was really great. But and uh, I think it also touches on um, this theme that we also have about sort of everyday forms of expertise and the importance of uh, examining the 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 root, the origins of, of individuals, or uh, their own backgrounds, um, where they traveled, um, and how they actually applied knowledge on the ground and you know worked with other um, experts, but also with um, communities um, and local communities. And so I think that um, one of the other kind of choices in the book was that uh, while institutions are very important, you know, so thinking about, I don't know, you know, um, the Rockefeller Foundation or um, CEPAL, the, um, the UN, you know, Commission on Economic Development in Latin America. Um, while these, while institutions are important, we really wanted to focus on kind of the role of individuals. And so, for example, um, you know, in in my chapter, I look at um, an urban planner who traveled to Europe and really all around the world in the 50s and then brought his sort of knowledge about um, transit systems and metro systems back to Santiago and Chile um, and then applied them in the sort of in the local context, um, but also examining the international conjuncture that made that work possible. Um, so, yeah, that's that's another, I think, valence behind this concept of itineraries. Yeah, that's a great contribution. Thank you. Um, well, I think that brings me to another question I had, which is how did bringing this volume together affect, um, how you saw your own projects, um, and how, how have your own projects sort of changed as a result of this? Andre, do you want to, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Um, I, maybe you can start. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think, um, I mean, how has this, I think this project has helped, helped, uh, frame who the audience, the, the audience is that I imagine for, for my own, uh, monograph that I'm, that I'm working on. Um, so I'm working on, on a history of agricultural development projects in Colombia, uh, in the Cauca Valley and in sort of Southwest Colombia, especially centered around the city of Palmira. And like this volume, you know, I'm, it's a, it's a history of Cold War development, but it's one that transcends this Cold War proper, right? So I start in the 1920s with the domestic founding of an agricultural experiment station in this, in this valley in Colombia, that's part of a broader set of regional and national, uh, development ambitions. And then I, I trace sort of the connections that this stage, this station forges across the Caribbean in the 1930s, which is really this transnational, this era of sort of transnational agrarian populism, not just in the New Deal United States, but across the Caribbean and in, in Colombia and other places as well. So I sort of locate this valley and this research station in that global conversation in the 1930s. And then, and then take it into the Cold War and show how the the actors in Colombia in this in this um, you know earlier period then inform, say, the Rockefeller Foundation or the World Bank or or others when they when they come down and start visiting Colombia after 1945. Um, and 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 from there, you know, the book really um, becomes. Um, 
it, 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 it begins to have a dialogue as well with, with sort of the literature on the Colombian conflict. And so it's looking in multiple directions. It's looking at how the Colombian case that I trace back to the 1920s really informed the broader green revolution of the Cold War period uh, at the international stage at the international scale, um, both materially as well as ideologically. But then in the reverse direction, I'm looking at how that broad global process that we, we now call the Green Revolution impacted how the Colombian conflict um, occurred across space and across time. And for example, how the partnerships forged as part of some of these these agricultural research programs ended up funneling resources into the corporate sugarcane industry in the Cauca Valley and how that in turn informed conflict that had its foundations in, in um, agrarian, agrarian revolt and displacement and, and um, you know, uncertainties for marginalized populations in the Colombian countryside. So, so in the same spirit as this volume, I'm I'm intentionally look I'm 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 grounded in a particular place, but looking in multiple directions. Um, I think Andra's project. I mean, I think Andra would probably agree that she's doing something similar. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um. I'm just. Yeah. That's a really. It's a. Thank you for that question about how the book kind of has changed our own project or. Um, informs it differently. Um, I think that in many ways, so my, my book is about, is a transnational history of the metro system in Santiago, Chile. Um, and it looks at the role of, you know, Chilean urban planners, as well as um, workers and passengers, and uh, French advisors who worked closely with Chilean engineers and planners. And the central idea that I'm still, you know, working with is this idea of a rational city, uh, which can mean many different things to many different people. But it kind of comes back to the idea of expertise also, which is in our, which, you know, from the book, from the book that we're talking about today. And so um, the idea of a rational city is articulated by a number of different actors. But I think that in my case, it really helps to illuminate how this idea of like a vision of progress or development in Chile um, shifts gradually uh, from, say, the 1950s up to the present. Um, so, you know, how what was the role of the state in articulating this vision of, you know, a sort of coordinated, um, developed, rational city, and then how that has shifted, especially now to a sort of more market-oriented vision um, since the 1980s. Uh, at the same time, something that I keep thinking about in my book, and I think also comes back to itineraries of expertise, is uh, the sort of tensions and the difficulty in entangling local or domestic ideas about, you know, how to live in the city, what is a rational city, um, you know, what is a just city, um, and outside or foreign or international visions of the same thing. And I think that in the in the book, we argue that in itineraries of expertise, we argue that it's actually often very hard to disentangle those two because, um, you know, sometimes local practitioners, um, scientists, uh, local communities were very much interested in, um, you know, these new ways of new ways of living or farming um, um, of so, you know so-called progress, and at the same time, people who came 
from local context often, you know, would then go on, leave the country and, you know, get, you know, credential outside of the country or spread their knowledge um, elsewhere. And that tension is in my book as well, because, um, you know, this question of how Chilean is the metro system versus how French, um, and it's a very kind of a politicized issue too. Um, and how much was it designed to actually serve, um, you know, the working class in, in Santiago, uh, the popular sectors versus, say, the middle class um, or other, other interests? So it's, I don't know if that answers your question, but these, these, you know, the dynamics between local and global are, I think, at the heart of some of the, of my book and also many of the questions and itineraries of expertise. I yeah, could, I think I that's, could, a, that's great. Go ahead. I, I could just, yeah, add to um, that a little bit. I was thinking as Andra was talking about, about her project, um, about, you know, one really concrete example of something I think that has come has come from this volume that has shaped my thinking um, has to do with with conversations that I've had with people involved in this project about decentering the archive uh, so uh, Tori Olson who appears in our project um, in itineraries of expertise as well as Gabriela Soto Laviaga who uh, was part of the original conference um, I've I've spoken with Tori and Gabriella over the years about the Rockefeller Archive Center, for example, and the way that it informs so much of the literature on agricultural modernization around the world in the 20th century. And that's not just for celebratory accounts, but it's also for highly critical accounts of the Rockefeller Foundation because the archive has invested so much in the preservation of historical material, whether you're writing a a celebratory account or a critical account or somewhere in between the Rockefeller foundation still is the central character in your study because of the, because of the way archives are funded and because of the footprint that our particular archive has as wonderful as it is. Um, so I think itineraries of expertise and then in my own future projects, you know, have really, have really tried to think critically about, about how to bring archives together. So in my case, thinking about bringing Colombian sources into dialogue with, you know, sources from the Rockefeller Archive Center and and others in the United States, and and really exploring exploring that relationship, um, I, you know, I think in particular that that's a conversation that's been sort of happening on the side among several of the contributors to itineraries of expertise, and it's something that's that's continuing to inform how I how I think about my own work. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and it, it that is one of the outgrowths of probably studying experts and expertise is that often those those groups are going to have a kind of vested interest in telling their own story, but also the ability to do so in conventionally recognized forums, um, or at least many of them will. That's that's a really interesting point. I kind of want to jump back to something you said, Andra, and I wanted to ask about the recent the recent protests in Chile, and whether you see that kind of tension, uh, the question of how Chilean in, is this um, object, is this technology, whether that has come to play at all in the in the conflicts that have emerged recently? That's a good question. Um, so yeah, in, in late 2019, um, 
massive protests um, emerged in Chile, um, sparked by a metro fare increase. And the protests, um, as maybe many, many listeners know, I'm not sure, but the protests grew to encompass a whole range of demands. So quickly went beyond a question of 30 pesos to a question of 30 years, 30 years of neoliberal policies um, and the effects of those on everything from the environment, uh, you know, water privatization to the healthcare system and education and, and pensions. Um, and at the same time, the Metro has not gone away as a target of the protesters, in fact, um, because the, in just in terms of the physical protests and violence, metro stations have been a major target. Um, and not just the metro, but also the buses, um, Transantiago, well, it used to be called Transantiago. They changed the name now. But um, the bus system, even, you know, private uh, toll highways. Um, and so these are, the the question of how Chilean it is versus, you know, the role of foreign um, capital or expertise has not been as central as the question, I would say, of uh, who these systems are designed to serve and how and who's making the decisions. And I think that this is not only about the metro or about, um, uh, you know, infrastructure issues in Chile, but about this broader idea of, of rule by experts right, and without popular input in many cases, which has been um, prevalent in Chile for a very long time, not only in the recent, more recent neoliberal era. And so I think that people are expressing a lot of the protests in Chile are, uh, one of the questions at the heart of it is about um, the inability of the political class, both on the right and the left, to really take seriously um, popular demands um, and, you know, uh, demands for participation um, and rethinking, you know, everything from the 1980 constitution that was written up, that was drawn up under dictatorship um, to, you know, local level decisions and you know, popular assemblies. Um, you also, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but I think that, you know, this, like <laughs> how experts, you know, make decisions on behalf of the broader population is, um, at the heart of these protests, but also other ones that have been happening in Latin America. So I think, I think one, one thing that I've been wanting to ask, um, to sort of bring this together is what do we if you had to recommend um, someone to just dive into your book, and do you have a do you have a favorite chapter or a most surprising or or important sort of anecdote or story or character that came out of the part of putting this book together? Um, anything you you would like our listeners to uh, to know um, to sort of draw them in? Um, Andre, should I go since yeah, my chapter wanna... comes first? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Andre and I talked about this earlier, and we each picked a chapter to to talk about. And the one the one I'll talk about um, just comes first. So so I'll start with that. Um, bef- before uh, talking about that chapter, though, I did want to reiterate something that that Andre said earlier, which is that um, you know the chapters in the this volume uh, we designed them to have an intentionally selective geographic coverage, right? Andra talked about these convergence zones already and how we, 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 we kind of single in on, on Colombia and Chile and Mexico and the Caribbean um, and, you know, leave out other important places like, like Brazil and Argentina and, and, 
and um, many others. Uh, for the sake of having these chapters really um, function well in dialogue. So we know that that might be unsatisfying to some, especially for people who work on on these other places. But we thought in the spirit of cohesion um, that we could say something in a little more detail if we if we were selective in that way. So um, one of the chapters that, that I really like uh, is the chapter by uh, Reynaldo Funes, Funes Monzote and Stephen Palmer, um, which, let's see, what is it called? I should give you the title. It's called Challenging Climate and Geopolitics, Cuba, Canada, and Intensive Livestock Exchange in a Cold War Context from the 1960s to the 1980s. So this, this chapter offers a little-known story of a long-standing exchange in livestock breeding between Cuba's revolutionary government and Canada. And I think that this chapter has all the ingredients that go into the volume's broader stew, so to speak. It, it, it showcases transnational collaboration, uh, the decentering of the United States and the Soviet Union, and sort of the Cold War proper or the Cold War ideological struggle that we've, we've talked about. Uh, it showcases Latin American scientists and the politicization of scientific achievements. And in this case, Fidel Castro's almost obsessive championing of Cuban milk cows as the embodiment of the revolution and a triumph over the supposed limitations of tropical climate. In a, in a sort of solidarity with decolonized peoples and nations throughout the Caribbean and Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, in really, really interesting ways. So using milk cows to speak to sort of that, that Cold War uh, spirit. Um, it's, it's also just a great story. I mean, this who knew, for example, that a Cuba... Utter, the super cow? Yeah, Ubre Blanca, right? It's the, who knew, for example, that a Cuban stockyard was set up in the port of St. John, New Brunswick for the shipment of breeding stock between Canada and Cuba. I mean, that was so fascinating to me. Or who knew that the celebrity status of that of that particular cow, right? Ubre Blanca, Cuba's most famous milk cow, that that Ubre Blanca drew the international press corps and visiting foreign dignitaries to the Isla de la Juventud and the off the southwest coast of Cuba. I mean, there's there's a grainy image of Fidel Castro and Ubre Blanca that, unfortunately, we weren't able to include in the volume, but that uh, Reynaldo showed us at the conference in 2016 and. You can find it if you search for Fidel Castro and Ubre Blanca online. Um, it, it's worth it. It's, it's, a, it's a striking photograph. And actually, many of our speakers at the conference wanted the image left on the projector so they could be photographed at the pod- podium speaking in front of Fidel Padding, this symbolic machine of the revolution. Right? It's a remarkable story and, and one that really speaks to the volume's intent. That's great. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, that was, that's another, that's definitely one of my favorites as well. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's so fascinating because of the, you know, I think people, students especially, and, and graduate students, but can really visualize what's happening because of, um, you know, the particular cows involved, um, can just imagine the, you know, the, the enormous amounts of milk being produced and how this was meant to, you know, propel Cuba into the future. Uh, and the, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to be speaking about a different chapter, but I'm just sort of reiterating that I found this one also really fascinating, you know, because it also shows how these dreams of, um, modernization and development were not specific to, you know, East or West communist or capitalist, um, but really crossed those divides. 
And you actually see the divide being crossed too in this exchange between Canada and Cuba. Oh, before Andre, before you talk about the other chapter, that just reminded me, you know, I used this chapter by Reynaldo and Stephen in a, in a class in an environmental history course I was teaching. And students, there was one student in particular who, who was really, um, you know, interested in the Cuban revolution and wanted to write about it. And, and this chapter caused some really unsettling thoughts, you know, that this chapter breaks down the maybe the assumption that some people might have that, right, that agricultural technologies and food production and sort of big agriculture were, were capitalist and exclusive to the United States and that, that Cuba, you know, was pursuing a different path. I think this chapter does a great job of really upsetting some of those, some of those assumptions. Yeah, so um, there are many really good chapters in the book. But the one that I wanted to flag um, that I think would be really interesting to many different kinds of readers is the last uh, chapter before the conclusion. Um, it's by Javiera Barandiaran, um, who is trained. Uh, she has interdisciplinary training um, in sort of STS and environmental studies. And it's called Privatizing Expertise, Environmental Scientists and Technocrats in Chile's Transition to Democracy. And I think it's important kind of it's sort of it's it's about Chile, but it's also about something much broader, um, which the book gestures at and which I think a lot of readers are interested in, which is kind of what is how did we get to this point, the sort of the neoliberal moment um, in which science and scientific knowledge are often marginalized in different ways from uh, policymaking. And how this happened in Chile is, is really interesting because in the 1980s, during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, um, environmental um, scientists um, did want to be more involved in policymaking um, you know, to, to confront some of the really serious environmental um, consequences of uh, rapid economic growth um, under sort of free market policies um, since the late 70s in Chile. And uh, although during the transition to democracy after 1990, although the new center-left Concertación government paid um, lip service to the importance of science and technology um, in this new era, um, the actual funding for science and environmental science was really pitiful. (laughs) And so Javiera's chapter traces um, the kind of paradoxes of of what happens when when questions about of, of knowledge, of basic knowledge about the environment um, or other kinds of scientific questions, um, when the state really doesn't prioritize those and instead essentially contracts it out to the market. So in, in a way, um, this is kind of a deeper question that's raised in this is like, you know, what is the truth for sale? You know, who is paying for knowing things about, you know, basic questions about air quality, say? Um, and so it's it's a way of sort of looking at the fine, like we see the fine grained, um, how this actually happens in the Chilean context. But I think it has lessons more broadly for um, what happens when expertise gets really um, separated from the state and when the state no longer prioritizes um, knowledge making. I suspect that's going to be a story that is very widely applicable. Um, yes. <laughs> as, as we move forward into the present. Um, 
Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, well, those are both great examples. And um, really, again, I, th- I think this book brings together a kind of remarkable assortment of stories about um, about expertise, but really about the way that science, technology, development, modernity, the environment are all brought together in a particularly intense way during the long Cold War. Um, and I just want to really congratulate you for doing this while you were graduate students as well. Um, very right. impressed. And uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you Thanks. so much for thank for you. talking to me today. And um, I, I hope you all stay safe. Yeah, thank you too. Thanks for yeah, the opportunity. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.